سلام خوش آمدید مرحبا اهلا و سهلا اناشنیکا خوانیان غمیدا سلام علیکم شراغلات اولام بینبینیدوس زدرستوچی دبرو پاجالوچی هلو ویلکم تو آر پادکست دیالای افل سی لنگو I'm here in the studio with four FAOs, or Foreign Area Officers. Rebecca Riopel, um, Captain, United States Marine Corps. Natalia Wodolinski, Lieutenant, United States Navy. Paula Jamal, Captain, U.S. Army. Major Tim Weiser, U.S. Air Force. Each podcast episode, I'm interviewing a different group of people that live and work and or train here at DLI. Today, we're delving into the world of FAOs. And just a warning, the theme of today is all the branches do things differently. Each person's journey to get to become a FAO is unique. So if you've always wanted to know about the FAO program, this is your chance. How long y'all been here? I've been here since May, uh, and I graduated. Yeah. And then I hit the MPS, and then I hit the MPS. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm only doing six months. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to do Your certificate course? Yeah, exactly. Nice. Yeah, I'm not going to do any more time. As opposed to? Uh, A lot of people, especially like the younger year groups, will do their actual masters at MPS. But I got my masters in 2016, so I was able to not have to do that again. And it was an IR masters, right? Or international relations no. type. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Was, uh, oh, they MBA. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm a year group 11, though, so if they push me to do that, then I'll be behind. Mm-hmm. And so kind of got lucky on that one. This is like a different language. What is year group 11? Uh, so it's the year that you got uh, commissioned. Okay. And you have a specific plan that you have to follow every year? Every grade, every promotion grade that you get, you have to you know, serve different positions and hit certain milestones before you get looked at on the board for promotion for next rank. Up. It's kind of how the military tracks each year, right? They refer to us as year group, and every year there's a certain amount of that year group that promotes to the next grade, and then it continues. So kind of oh. like our identifier. Yeah. So that goes across all the branches. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually hear oh, it. you don't have a year group? In that, I haven't heard that phrase before. Oh. A year group? Uh-uh. Oh. What do you Maybe call it? Just like your data I mean, rank, your peers. Yeah, we have data rank, your, I don't know, company, field grade, whatever your. Huh. So like the people that you commissioned with and what were you, 2014, 13? Um, my commissioning was 2012. So we had like an OCS class in 2010 and 2011. Interesting. Or TBS class in 2013. Huh. Yeah, so the Air know. Force, regardless of commissioning oh, source, oh, the year of your commissioning is going to be your year. It sounds like the Army Same and Navy, Navy are similar. Yeah. 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 yeah, I'm a 12-year group. What is TBS? Oh, the basic school. Uh, it is our first officer wow. training. Um, after boot camp, it's like the general officer course that everyone goes to. So do you have to go through regular boot camp? Yes, you go through regular boot camp. Um, officers go to Quantico, Virginia to do training there. And yeah, it's called the body softener. It's where you go and softener. live in the woods and do tactics and infantry stuff for seven months and it's the most marine corps name i've ever heard it's very motivating you go body softener in virginia (laughs) yeah it's in virginia somebody was telling me about it it's like yeah you do a lot of land nav you do a lot of uh 
homework and tests. That's and... why you guys are the Marines and we're <laughs> not not. <laughs> going like, well, we're gonna go on a hike. I've heard oh, of camping. Oh, just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. We tend Run to with your weapons and go set up the effects and for seven months. Yeah. Wow. Nice time. That's not <laughs> more specific, is it? I got really excited to go back to the squad bay to take out the trash because we were home. That was part of your commissioning process? That was after commissioning. You go okay. to basic school. Okay, so yeah. But if you do you ROTC did. and you're Marine, you go to... Oh, sorry. I was thinking of OCS. Yeah. I'm confused. So I'm all, officer go, yeah, yeah. all officers go to basic school. Right. Okay. Now that makes sense. But that's after commissioning. Correct. Right. This is really interesting. When it's, did you commission? Totally different world. 12. Oh, nice. I was, yeah, summer of 12. 24. Well, how about you? What year were you? Oh, I was 13. 13. Okay. And, uh, yeah. and Ala, you were? 11. 11. Yeah. Oh, so you're all around the same time frame. Mm-hmm. Or less. Okay. So uh, let's start with you, Becca. Tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got to DLI, and where you're from. So I'm currently a captain in the Marine Corps. I came from MPS, but before that I was in Japan. Um, I'm originally from Anchorage, Alaska, but the basically the last duty station I was at was uh, MAG-12 in Iwakuni, so it was an air wing unit. Um, I was an admin officer for the air wing. So basically uh, I got picked up on the C-Club board and got to go down this FAO track for um, studying Chinese. Okay. And how long were you at MPS before this? I was there for about a year and a half. Okay. So different from what Allah did or is going to do in six months. Yeah. I think you guys get your degree and you finish your JPME, right? You're before heading here. Uh, I, some folks elect to get their JPME and some don't. What is JPME? Joint Professional Military Education. Yeah. Every grade and rank has a professional military education requirement of kind of like what standardizes you for that knowledge across that rank. So for Marines, we have Expeditionary Warfare School, and then afterwards is a it's command and staff, but there's a joint PME equivalent. So I did JPME 1 at MPS, but I, I heard I can't take two until I'm like yeah, it's more senior. lieutenant colonel or something. So. <laughs> Definitely more senior. Anyhow. Okay. Nat, how about you? Um, so, yeah, similar uh, in the way that I laterally transferred to FAO. Um, I started off as a surface warfare officer, so I served on ships for my first two tours. Uh, I did a shore duty in San Diego and then in Naples um, as a flag aide. And then I came to NPS first. Uh, I did my uh, master's, but I did comprehensive exams, so it was only a year long. Um, and then after I finished that, I came here to DLI to study Korean. When you say comprehensive, you mean like it was... Yeah, so basically at MPS, if you do the master's uh, track, you can either write a thesis, um, so that's a little bit longer, or you could uh, take exams that basically cover everything you've learned. So it's like a week-long period where you write exams, so super intense. I don't know. Some people prefer thesis. Some people prefer exams. And Um, you preferred the... I don't know. (laughs) I mean, exams, you finish it off pretty quick. It's one week and you're done. Thesis, you're working on it for your entire time there. I think, Rebecca, you probably wrote a thesis, right? I did not, actually. Oh, you didn't? But okay. I actually wanted to write a thesis. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was, like, hard denied by the Marine Corps, but <laughs> It sounds okay. like every branch has their own way of doing it, because I've heard, like, a different path through all of this from just about everyone that I've talked yeah. to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Some people write theses. Some people, if they have international relations backgrounds or something, in your case, you know, they don't require it, but. Are you, like, a poli-sci buff? No, not at all. <laughs> I uh, well, yeah, actually, I'll let, let's. Yeah, so I did my bachelor's in San Diego. Huh? Um, after I moved from Lebanon, which is where I was born, 
came to San Diego. We had family there, and I stayed there, uh, living at home until I went to college in San Diego, San Diego State, and then I joined the Army. From the Army, I commissioned. I went through OCS, and then my first duty station after training was in Korea. So I did a year there. Great experience. I would not do it again. It's not my, <laughs> not my scene, I guess. But after that, I went to Washington State and joined Base Lewis McCord, deployed to Afghanistan for a year from there. And then after I came back from Afghanistan, I changed my jobs. I used to be a military police officer. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But so I changed from uh, military police to civil affairs, which had an application requirement and a qualification course, which was a year long. Luckily, I did part of that training program. You have to do a language, and I did Farsi for six months. So once I got picked up for FAO, they were like, well, you already speak these languages. Let's just refresh you up on some Farsi. So it's been a good experience so <laughs> good far. Good choice of words. That's nice. Well, yeah, <laughs> actually, uh, how many languages do you know then? So I speak Arabic, obviously, because I just mentioned I was born in Lebanon. And the army recognizes the different dialects of Arabic as different languages. So in the army's eyes, I'm familiar with like five languages. <laughs> That's awesome. But it's really just one language. Um, when you say in the army's eyes, do you mean in the army's payment table? Payment eyes? Eyes. <laughs> yes. yes. Awesome. Yes. Good for you, man. You got the secret passcode. <laughs> yes. And then do you know French as well? I do know a little bit of French um, just because growing up in Lebanon, our education system is a little bit different where you learn when you start in kindergarten elementary school, for me specifically, I did English and Arabic as my languages. And once you hit middle school, they add the other language that you didn't do, right? So like for me, in this case, was French. Um, so I did French. But it's, it's true what they say, right? If you don't use it, you lose it. So after coming to the U.S., where French wasn't needed, I kind of lost it. And then, like I said, Farsi now, but... Yeah, that's that's a lot. <laughs> that's cool you did civil affairs, too. Yeah, so civil affairs is what really got me to FAO. I, um, when I, so I deployed several times at, as CA because we have shorter deployments. And the times that I deployed to non-combat zones, I was able to work in embassies. And we worked with a lot of FAOs um, on a, almost on a daily basis. You know, we mostly worked with State Department, but then we also worked with the Office of Security, Security Cooperation and their DIA counterparts. And kind of got and talked to a lot of them, uh, worked with a lot of Air Force FAOs and, and Marine FAOs in Lebanon specifically, wow. which was my last deployment. Um, and yeah, so they kind of really turned me on. And I was always, it was always in the back of my mind to join FAO because I always wanted to travel. And really, that was the reason I joined the Army is to travel. Um, and I think FAO is the, the way to do that for me. Also, I can use my background and my language to the benefit of the Department of Defense in a whole. When you were in Afghanistan, were you there as a CA guy or as a I was an MP in MP. Afghanistan, and we worked. We were on Bagram. It's a it's unfortunate for me that I was the only. So we had a lot of linguists over there, that were um, Dari Pashtu speakers, no Arabic translators, and the first six months I was there, I was on uh, nights. So I worked from 8 to 8, and I was the only Arabic speaker down there. And unfortunately, like I say, for me, is B1 
the third country national detainees that we had were mostly all Arabic speaking, and somebody had to supervise their either their visits or their phone calls, and they did them during the day. So there should be a lot of days when I'm like woken up in the middle of my sleep. Oh, and yeah. Like, hey, you got to sit in on this guy's conversation. And I'm like, sigh. <laughs> Why didn't they just put you on days then? They, I was the, I wasn't the senior lieutenant at the time, and the person that my counterpart was more senior to me. So, yeah, yeah. Politics. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I'll tell you one funny story. Um, at the end of that deployment, we were, we had to, we we were, we turned over the prison to the Afghans, and we still had the third country nationals because we weren't going to give it to them. We wanted to rep- repatriate them to their country, and. At the time, there was issues with the Secretary of Defense. He either resigned at the time or something was going on because the Secretary of Defense has the final seal or they need his signature to repatriate them. And for us, when we hear Secretary of something, it's a very prominent position in the administration. When the Middle Eastern prisoners heard Secretary of something, they're like, why is a secretary so important in the U.S. that they need <laughs> their signature to approve? And it kind of, I, was, I was taken back by it. I was like, very interesting point. <laughs> and so I had to explain to them, you know, our, you know, our administration, how it works. And they're like, that still makes no sense to us. I'm like, I know. I get it. Linguistic. Yeah. 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 That's awesome, man. Okay, Tim. So um, let's hear about you. Sure. Um, Tim Weiser, I'm a, uh, an Air Force major. Uh, as far as background in, in language goes, uh, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, LDS guy, served a mission in Thailand. That was my first bit with languages, learned Thai for uh, just over two years. Loved that experience. Uh, and then when I got back to the University of Utah, started school, started ROTC, got involved with with Project Go. I don't oh, know yeah. if any of you... I did Project yeah, Go. Super yeah, super cool. Great. Super cool program. I need to catch up and see if it's still a thing so I can recommend it to, to young dudes. But um, awesome experience. I got to study abroad in China two back-to-back summers, and that was kind of my, my kickstart into Chinese. So between Thai and, and Chinese, they decided to send me to Indo-Paycom. I'm here learning uh, Mandarin with Becca as well. So... As far as Air Force goes, I spent the last 10 years as a combat search and rescue helicopter pilot, so uh, I was in, I was at Bagram as well. Um, that was a fun time. So 10 years doing that, um, and then my plan actually was always to come fail. So at, when I was in Thailand, I met a, a guy who was, he was uh, in the Air Force at that time, was called RAS, Regional Area Specialist, and then just the last couple of years, we changed it to mirror the rest of the service's name, so Foreign Area Officer, but was lucky enough to get picked up, and here we are. All right. Yeah, you know, the Air Force doesn't have cool things like civil affairs, which I think is pretty awesome. But do you, do you have to be an officer to do civil affairs? No, absolutely not. We actually, we are the minority in uh, well, civil Well, Marine Corps affairs. has civil affairs. They do. The Marine Corps has CAG, um, civil affairs group. I've never worked with Marine civil affairs. Uh, you reminded me when you said that. I was like, man, I totally forgot that I got that MOS. <laughs> Like, I went to that school and Did you? that whole oh, 0530, awesome. yeah, I just didn't go down that. I was going to get out at the time and go do reserve civil affairs, but 
I totally forgot about it. You forgot so. you got an MLS. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There's a lot of things I forget. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you know what? Actually, while we're on the topic, uh, let's talk about um, the best and the worst career uh, choices that you've made. So uh, let's start with yours. Yours was interesting. Oh, sure. So the best career choice I made was going to be a series commander at Paris Island and supervise Marine boot camp. So, I mean, at the time, I was just kind of like mesmerized with like this drill instructor situation and you know how they what are what are they doing for these 70 training days um but it was really valuable for me to see how when a high school kid is wanting to join the marine corps and he goes he becomes a pulley and then he becomes a recruit and then he becomes um goes through the 70 training days and earns his eagle globe and anchor and he becomes a united states marine and so it was neat to get to work with the drill instructor teams and watch that transformation happen um and then know what to expect as like an officer of marines in a unit so i know that when that pfc shows up this is all the knowledge he has so far and i know what i can expect of him and what further training he needs in the MOS or whatever to achieve his goals. Yeah, that's really cool. So that's not a normal thing that um, Marines do? I mean... I mean, it's so it's a B-billet. So you have your primary MOS. So I'm a manpower officer or adj by trade. So you're all things in the world of admin on a command deck with a CO. But for your second tour, you're encouraged to go to a B-billet so you can choose a number of different kind of what options are open with the marine corps it could be like marine security guard um recruiting duty um and like uh, the enlisted can go become drill instructors and officers can go become series commanders so you'll have um just tons of recruits that are going through the recruit training process basically i missed it how long did you do that uh two years really yeah but what how many classes go through in two years <clears throat> Um, like several series. So it's like every three and a half months, there's a new set of 120 for your series. So that's probably such a cool transformation to watch. I've never been involved in that level of training. You know, that's yeah. like yeah. day one. Welcome to military. That's really cool. It's neat to watch the <laughs> drill instructors evolve too, because they're you know, the, everything, everybody has this idea of, like, this drill instructor is, this, like, this hardcore, like, chew someone Major out. and type style. Um, <laughs> they, the drill instructors, like, go through a growing process, too, as they learn how to not just take them from lights to lights at zero four to um, twenty hundred at night and take, literally live the entire day with them and take them to every chow hall and training event, but um, learn how to, like, go be a senior drill instructor, go be a chief drill instructor, and how to report at the chain. That's cool. Interesting. Where, where, where was that at? Um, that was, June or? yeah, Paris Island, South Carolina. So. Never been to one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. South Carolina. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Paris Island. Paris Island. <laughs> That's where yeah. we had some uh, no. nightmares from uh, my basic training. Okay, Becca, so what was your worst decision? Oh, worst? Career decision. Yeah, career, worst career decision was I was dating someone at the time, and I had submitted to get out, and I guess to make a long story short, we broke up, and I was like, 
oh my gosh, what am I doing with my life? Maybe they'll let me back in. So <laughs> thankfully, like not a lot of people really want to do admin. So <laughs> the Marine Corps was like, yes, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That's interesting that um, it's you go from admin to FAO. Yeah, not a lot of admins do FAO, actually. <laughs> How did that end up working out? Um, so I was really interested in the program just because, I mean, for many reasons. Um, when I was working in Japan, we had a plane crash. That was really impactful to me to, like, I don't know, just watch how people's lives were changed and see all the geopolitical things going on. And I had heard of this program. I thought I was too far in to apply for it. So I kind of was like, well, let me write an essay or whatever. And surprisingly, they picked me up for, I told them I had some prior Chinese background. So I think that made me a more likely candidate. But um, yeah, basically, I got lucky and picked up on the C Club board and um, got the opportunity to do the training here. So. What is the C Club? Uh, it's the Commandant's Career Level Education Board. So every uh, lieutenant and captain is eligible to basically get picked up on a special education program, depending on your expertise or interests and also like just needs of the Marine Corps. Do the other branches have something similar? Well, some sort of board, probably. Yeah. Um, what they're called is, is something different. Yeah, like Navy's Lateral Transfer Board. And it's, yeah, you actually are changing your designator. Because I think, Marine Corps, you have to go back and serve in your original oh, yeah, billet, owe, right? I owe, you like, rotate. the next seven years of my life now. Yeah, but, but you're not in, like, FAO billets forever, right? You have to, like, go back and forth. No, yeah, you have yeah. to. So after all this training, and I'll get a little stint of overseas for a year, I will owe my MOS payback in my original job. So a manpower officer in... I'm hoping for G1 division in Pendleton, but um, is the Navy not that way? No. You're so once you're up. a FAO, you're like you're a FAO for life. Like, really? um, yeah. So I'll never go back to a ship unless it's you know in Seventh Fleet on our um, flagship there, because FAOs will actually serve on that ship. But I wouldn't be in the capacity of a surface warfare officer. I wouldn't drive the ship anymore or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. we're gonna come back to the yeah. slow thing. But yeah, I think the Air Force is the same way as the Marines, right? It is. Yeah. So. Um... The Air Force's FAO program has gone through some changes <clears throat> in the last little while. But for me, for instance, I'm going to go do, I'm actually going to Thailand. So learning Chinese, but going to Thailand. I'll do three years there, and then I'll go back to either flying combat search and rescue or, or something else for another three years. And then like back to FAO, you kind of play this back and forth game. Mm -hmm. And how about the Army? We stay as FAOs. So we do, we have a, a VTIP, which is a voluntary transfer incentive program, and it opens up either once or twice a year, and you have to apply. There's a packet that you got to put in, but it's for all the functional areas. Um, and if you get accepted by the board, which you not you don't participate in the board, um, just your documents. So you get accepted, and that's you start your next career path. Okay, it's so interesting how different all the branches are and yeah. what they do. Um, but okay, so let's go back to uh, the SWO because that that falls under um, your best career and worst career. Well, yeah. not worst, but your best career ideas. Yes. What happened? So go ahead. So I also was going to get out of the Navy. I was 
after my two sea tours, which amounted to about five years at sea, um, I was just ready to be done. Yeah, it's a lot of time, a lot of time away from home. You're out at sea a lot, did a nine-month deployment. Um, I was just ready to go to shore duty and then transition out. I was engaged, um, and I just wanted to have a normal schedule and be at home, which I think, honestly, all the services probably have certain jobs like that where you're just run to the ground kind of. Um, but for my shore duty when I was slating, so the Navy gives you like a list of all the billets that are available and you give them your top 20 choices, at least in the surface community. And then they rack and stack you and say, okay, you're going here. So I had 20 billets available in San Diego, luckily, magically. And I put all 20. And then the day before results were coming out, my detailer called me and said, Hey, um, I think, you know, I have this flag aid job. I think you should do it. And I was like, I do not want to be a flag aide. Flag aides and aide de camps and other services are notoriously known for long work hours. You know, you're working for an admiral or a general. You're on their schedule. You're traveling with them. And although it's a great experience for most people, I was just like, I'm done. I just want to be home. I need my, I need a recharge. I need to prepare myself to get out. Um, but basically, my detailer said, sorry, you're in a nominative block. You're submit we're submitting your application. Um, send me your, you know. There was like some information I had to submit, like an officer photograph, things like that. Um, and so I know detailers have to fill certain things. And it was in San Diego. So he's like, well, you'll stay in San Diego and you have to interview anyway. And if you don't get it through the interview, we'll give you what you want, that kind of thing. So I said, OK, I'm going to interview. And I called a lot of my mentors, talked to them about it. And they're like, you know, it could be a good opportunity. Just give it your best. And I'm like, OK, well, if I'm going to interview, I'm not going to do it half you know I'm gonna really try and get this job but I'll be honest with the admiral so I told the admiral I said you know sir this isn't the job I wanted during my interview wow um I said you know if I work for you I will do my best but I said honestly it's just not what I want to do and of course I got selected so um <laughs> I went to work for the admiral um but it was the best career decision I ended up making because um not only was he just a genuine person to work for. He actually cared for me. He gave me three weeks off to go get married, go on my honeymoon, like unheard of. He's like, you know what? This is your time. You only get married once, hopefully in your life. Um, go take the time you need to enjoy this. And so I really appreciated that. And then down the road, a year into the job, he got promoted. Um, so he got to go take a job in Naples in Italy. And he asked me to come with him. And that had been my dream job. I tried to go to Naples for my second ship tour, or I guess it would have been like a shore duty, but um, I didn't get it. So it kind of was a sign to me. I'm like, I made it to Italy. This is what I always wanted. Um, and then that led me to being a FAO, um, just living overseas and having that experience, uh, dealing with foreign militaries, that kind of thing, um, really wanted, like, excited me about the FAO community. So it ended up being the best decision. Yeah. And here I am. I'm not out of the military. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, and do you, did you have a worse uh, career choice? I think, no. So I try to think about it. I honestly, luckily, haven't had a worse career decision. I think every choice I've made, maybe it didn't seem right at the time, but it, in the end, it worked out. Um, so whenever there's a decision, I feel like I try to take it um, open-minded, with an open mind, and, you know, see what comes of it. So I, I couldn't think of anything, thankfully. Yeah. How about you, Allah? Yeah, I agree uh, with Natalia. I mean, I don't think I've had a bad or a great experience, like a really good experience. I think every experience that I've had, every move, every career choice that I've done in the Army has been pretty great. 
I get what you put into it. So, like, my suggestion for anybody that's going to listen is it doesn't matter where you go or where you end up, what position you take. Just do the best you can in it, and your actions and your performance will speak for itself, and you will be recognized for it. And hopefully, once that one particular job is done, then you'll get a say in where you want to go next. Um, but like I said, as for me, uh, I've enjoyed every single job I had. I've met people, I've traveled, um, different experiences from the two-star level um, all the way down to the platoon level. Um, but as a civil affairs, um, which I do recommend for people if they have like an affinity for being a, a member of a small team with a lot of leeway for decision making uh, and thinking outside the box um, and adventures, I guess, you know, to sell it even better. Um, because my team and I, we had great experiences where we went. And at times you're, you know, briefing the um, SF commander on the ground. And then times you have Congress people that come in or senators or the ambassador of that company, you're briefing them. Um, so you got to be quick on your feet, maybe smart. And, and I'll say it again, just make the best out of every experience you get. Okay. And uh, Tim, so I'm getting yours confused because I heard, I saw Zamboni driver. Um, <laughs> That was my first job <laughs> and the best career decision I ever made. We talked about this in Chinese. <laughs> yeah, I liked this story. Time. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so, uh, the Zamb you want to go to the Zamboni Road? Absolutely. Let's All do it. Right. a good yeah. story. That was, that was good. Uh, so, I, I was fortunate enough to not really have to work much through, through high school prior to college, right? Uh, I did some, some soccer refereeing which was also a great job, but not a real job, right? Uh, when I got to college, I decided I probably need more than my ROTC stipend to live on, and I didn't want to continue to leech off of mom and dad, so went to the local ice rink and, and put an application in, and the, the job opening they had was a Zamboni driver, and I was stoked. <laughs> Does everybody know what Zamboni is? Yeah. Uh, there, it's, you'd be surprised how many people don't know what a Zamboni is. I guess so. if you grow up in a hot place, you know, <laughs> you know, right? The Arizona, or, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, anyway, I spent, uh, yeah, the four years that I was in college at the University of Utah as Steiner Aquatic Center's Zamboni driver. And fun fact, that's where Nathan Chen skated every day. So, wow. Yeah. I basically am also a gold medalist oh, now have, because yeah, I made to, him his ice every day. You have to pause and explain who that is. Nathan Chen? Yeah. Oh, man. If you're, if you're not Nathan Chen is. An ice skater. A, I don't think all of an are yeah. like, yeah. I don't know. Oh, really? I'm assuming he's an ice skater. Uh, Speed skater? What kind of skater? Just figure well, skater? What is great. he? He's, he just won multiple gold medals. Don't look at me. Medals. I don't know. <laughs> you guys don't watch the Olympics? Oh, my god. I don't know. I don't have time for Jim. Jim, do you know who Nathan Chen is? Jim. All right. All right, guys. Yeah. So Nathan Chen just won several gold medals Current in China. He's currently widely regarded as the greatest ever male figure skater. So yeah. That's what you've been if doing. If so facto, I made the ice that he skated on, so I'm also a gold medalist. I no, thought it he, was 
really yeah, he funny. Skated, yeah, he skated there since he was 12 years old, and I think he's a robot is the bottom line. I mean, he spent eight hours a day just doing twirls on the ice. It's crazy. I thought it was really funny. You assumed everybody who is completely absorbed in, in school, they know, they would know, obviously, what the Olympics are <laughs> oh, going no. on. Guys, you're killing me. <laughs> no, that's, uh, all right, we'll, uh, we'll YouTube them later. Uh, <laughs> we'll have a class yeah. after. Phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal figure skater, yeah. but yeah. that's my, that's my claim to fame. Anyway, that was a great job. Lots of fun. Um, my ROTC detachment was just down the way. So my only responsibility every day as a college kid was to uh, call it make the ice, right? I had to drive like two or three times. It took about 15 minutes per, but I was clocked in for the whole day. So this was with my boss's permission. I got to go to class on the clock. I did all my ROTC stuff. It was literally the best job ever. I'm not really sure why I joined the Air Force. I should have just piloted a Zamboni for the rest of my life. Yeah, no, it was, it was awesome. Okay. Um, all right. So let's get away from. Thank you very much for You're that. Welcome. By the way, let's get away from career stuff for a little while. Zamboni, notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, let's start with you, Ala. Tell me about what to do on your um, days off, downtime. Downtime. Uh, I'm I'm glad we're all stationed in Monterey because it's really beautiful. I mean, there's a lot worse places to station. Um, so really, outdoors a lot of great running trails around here or hiking or whatever you guys want to do. Um, I do spend a lot of time on the beach. I definitely need a wetsuit for swimming here. It's super cold. Yeah. Did not expect it. Because uh, when I lived in San Diego, you just jump in and it's beautiful and great. And I was like, oh, great. You know, we're on the Pacific. Like, it's going to be great. Nope. Not so. <laughs> not so much. I had to run back home and grab my wetsuit to go Chilly. back. It was really cold. Um, you have a wetsuit? Like... You just carry one around with you? Well, I used to surf when I was in, uh, in San Diego. And you do need one when it's in the wintertime and you want to surf because the swell sometimes a lot better. Um, but I have one. Um, but I went to the, the first time I came here, which is last May, was I saw kids on the beach and they were just swimming like nothing. I was like, okay, great. I can just jump in there. <laughs> yes. And then I realized that kids have like no sense of cold or warm. <laughs> you know, I have a daughter and she's five and... I should have figured, like, yeah, because she would jump into the water, like, no issues. And I just, as soon as I put a pinky in there, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's freezing. You know what? I wondered about that. As we get older, or do we have more sensitivity to that stuff? I remember it was summer, and it was, like, I remember sweating, but I just wanted to play softball or whatever I was doing with the, my brothers. And I didn't care about the heat. Now I'm like, no, I don't do heat. We just, we're getting old. Is that what it is? I think so. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to subscribe to this conversation. <laughs> well, there's kidding. old man strength and there's little kid strength, I think. We're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, how about you, Nat? What do you do? Um, yeah, I echo Ala. I mean, I like to take advantage of the outdoors here, so I love to go hiking. I think I wrote specifically like to wake up a little later than normal, um, sleep in a little, have a really good breakfast. I'm all about breakfast. Um, and, yeah, go hiking somewhere in Big Sur or um, Santa Cruz. I've kind of checked out Santa Cruz a little. Uh, maybe do more of that in the future. And then definitely eat some good food. Uh, food. My life revolves around food. Yes. Um, yes. So check out some good restaurants. What's your favorite cuisine? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I could say I'm partial to Italian just because I just moved from there. or Not just. That was my last duty station. But I don't know. I like yes. everything. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, Becca, uh, tell me about what you do, because you had some interesting things. Um, go ahead. I'm excited for Wait, <laughs> Okay, every week in Chinese class, they ask us what we're doing this weekend. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, I'm going to go bike riding. And, um, yeah, I have kind of an eclectic group of 60-year-old friends. And, yeah, I kind of pick and choose which ones I'm going to go bike riding with. So it's kind of... I kind of want to know how that came about, because you're not 60 or, or close. I mean, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. No, Um, I have a ways to go, thankfully. Um, Yeah, I guess mostly not to... Well, so I had some MPS professors and folks that I got to know through my studies there that I found out they were into cycling. Um... I don't know. And then I'd be like riding down the road and then it just I feel like that's like a thing that maybe that age group is into around here. I don't know. Maybe it's because there's a bunch of retirees around Monterey. <laughs> it's maybe more of that. You can say that they're um, just not fun to hang out with. Yeah, no, <laughs> sophisticated people. That's okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, why I'm not hanging out with my peers. <laughs> um, I don't know, because I I feel like I see this age group all the time and. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're just, they add a different note for me, so. I like that. I like that you're getting variety. That's good. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate the support. <laughs> you go with your bike riding. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> How about you, Tim? What do you do? Uh, well, in all of the free time that all of us have during <laughs> DLI and our studies, um, honestly, I've got a, uh, a three-year-old. My wife, also active duty Air Force, works up the, uh, the 517th training group. And I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so we're a, we're a busy bunch right now. But most of our stuff involves around caging energy of a three-year-old and, and then budding mm-hmm. emergency or uh, energy of a, uh, a one-year-old, also an emergency sometimes. But um, anything outside that gets them going, you know, uh, they love the beach. We've got bikes. My three-year-old, Molly, she's starting to ride bikes and stuff. So we get outside and get out on the trail and, and hang out. It's, it's a great place to be if you like being outdoors. Good so, for her. Just about all yeah, that. Proud She's of her. getting into hiking now. <laughs> oh, she nice. asked me to go on the trails. We live up uh, wow. behind Del Monte Golf Course, so Jack's Peak is kind of our backyard. you got to get her some Ray-Bans. Love it. Oh, she's already got some. Don't you worry. Oh, nice. Yeah, have you experienced imposter syndrome? Oh, absolutely. I think probably most of us have, um, which I see it as a a good thing and a bad thing, right? So for those who don't know what imposter syndrome is, those listening, right? I mean, it's just the sense that you're a fraud or you don't belong or, I mean, a psychological syndrome that maybe you haven't earned where you're at, right? And that it all might come crashing down on you at some point. But yeah, no, I felt that all the time. But I think it's a a byproduct of of the peer group that we have right and i mean especially you know in in our backgrounds and our our jobs we're fortunate enough to to spend time with just a very high caliber uh group of people and that's both the enlisted and the officer force that that i've been fortunate enough to have time with so you know it's hard to be in a group like that and see the talent and feel the talent and 
and not feel like maybe you're out of your league. Um, but again, you know, one of the, I, I don't even know who said it, but a fun quote that I heard and, and that I really like is that if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm in the wrong room, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just surround yourself with people who are better than you, who will bring you up all the time. And, you know, you're going to feel like you don't belong occasionally. So that's my experience with it. But I think, I think when you look at it like that, it's more of just a blessing of who you're surrounded by. So when did you, I mean, like, can you give me an example of when you felt like you had Sure. A- um, yeah, perhaps one of the most intimidating places uh, I've ever been is briefing a, are you all familiar with Operation Red Flag? It's a very, very large, there is one in Alaska. It's yeah. it's an Air Force centric, but a lot of other players, Navy plays, it's aviation centric, Marines yeah. play. But perhaps the biggest mock air war um, that, that we put on, right? It's typically at Nellis Air Force Base or somewhere in Alaska. Some of the vast open spaces where you can do highly dangerous things without a lot of consequence, right? So anyway, uh, when that group of people comes together, it comprises the world, one of the world's largest air forces, just on that base, right? I mean, so when you when you stop and you think about the sheer power in that room, it's it's a little bit daunting. And, you know, all of us who have done it go through different upgrades and you're expected to stand up and brief, you know, your piece of this giant, layered, um, very complex air war, you know, and, and when, when you have that experience, it's, yeah, it's hard not to feel like, like, how did I get here, right? So uh, that pilot training would be another one, you know, you all of a sudden get out of college, you, you find yourself in the real world doing some real things, and yeah, you tend to feel like that. Yeah. Okay, so Nat, tell me about your experience uh, as a SWO and explain what SWO is. Yeah, so um, are we talking in reference to imposter syndrome anymore? Yes. Or, okay, yeah. just me. Yeah, so SWO is a surface warfare officer. Um, it's one of the community communities you can commission into uh, as a naval officer. And I think that's probably what most people think of when they think Navy. They're like, okay, Navy on the water, ships. You're on a ship. So, um, yeah, I was on a destroyer and an LPD. and it's a unique community because it's one of the only ones that you commission into and you go straight to your ship and you're in charge of a division of sailors and you're like, you're here. There's really no training. Now they've introduced like a, I think it's nine weeks now, like a nine week course where you learn some things um, as far as how to be a division officer, basically the ship. But generally speaking, you go straight there. It's not like going to flight school or some mariners go to nuke school, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, when you get there, you just feel like, like, what am I doing? And you're in charge of this group of sailors um, and really technical weapon systems. Like for my first tour, I was the strike officer. So we were in charge of the Tomahawk weapon system. Um, and I was in charge of overseeing the plans for Tomahawk strike missions. Uh, so there is a short school for that. It's about three weeks. But still, I mean, you know, you're, you're kind of there and you're like, if this happens and, you know, we have to do this, it's a really big deal. And my training is minimal. So I think imposter syndrome comes from that naturally, just because you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, why did they put me here? You know, I, my, ma- or my bachelor's was in environmental science. You know, I wasn't even an engineer. I was, for me, it was just, I knew that I was going to be put in that position, but um, I, I really felt like I didn't know what I was doing. But for some, you know, they trust us to do this. And I had 
um, very smart enlisted uh, personnel, both junior and senior, to help me out. Um, and of course, you know, you have your supervisors and things like that. But it was hard not to feel like, what am I doing? How do I do this? You know, they don't trust me. I'm going to mess something up. Um, and then additionally, imposter syndrome, I think, I felt it most recently as a FAO at MPS. So this also goes back to being an environmental uh, science major. You know, I was thrown into like a poli-sci master's degree, basically, you know, international relations. I have never studied international relations. I couldn't tell you about realism, liberalism, all these theories. And, you know, you're in a room with, or I guess I was virtual for my master's, but you're in a virtual room with, yeah, <laughs> um, with folks who do know what they're talking about, who do have that background and obviously professors who are very knowledgeable. But I just remember sitting there and saying, I have no idea what anyone's talking about. Why am I here? How am I going to be a good FAO if I can't talk about realism, liberalism, just using these theories? Um, but I took a step back and I realized, okay, well, I'm here to learn. There's a reason someone put me here. Um, just because I don't know it now doesn't mean I can't know it later. And why don't I, like Tim said, why don't I learn from these people who know this stuff and who are very smart? Um, and so every time I've kind of had that imposter syndrome feeling, I just think about who's around me and how I can learn from that experience. And just remember, there's a reason you're here. You wouldn't, they wouldn't put you in that position if someone didn't trust you or believe you could do it. Uh, Becca, tell me about your experience. Good. I honestly hadn't like heard the phrase until maybe last year, I think. So, well, and how I heard of it was through some paper I was writing at NPS on China and 5G. And I had like interviewed like five professors on what was going on. And it was all on Secretary of State at the time, Pompeo's clean network to do with the 5G networks. And apparently in my writing style, it became clear to whoever was at their graduate writing center was like helping me review my paper that I was like not maybe confident in what I was talking about. So I think it was more of just kind of like a, like you did the research, own that you're an expert on it um, and learn from, you know, whatever constructive criticism you might receive. But yeah, that's my story. And uh, so you had never heard of? Yeah, I've never heard of a imposter syndrome until the email that we sent the questionnaire and I started to look it up and you know obviously it's a lot of what you guys said um, but to me what I got from it you know everyone's going to be nervous everyone's going to be have some, some level of uncertainty in a job right because you don't know what you don't know but what I what I thought to myself is as long as you know yourself and you can you trust in your ability um and just own what you do. Um, and always don't, I guess one of the symptoms is you are working, you, you'll just work alone and you don't want to show your weaknesses or your strengths to people working around you um, for fear of failure or something like that. But from my point of view is, you know, we are a team and these people are do want to support you, want to see you succeed because, you know, Downrange, you know, your lives depend on working with each other, knowing your personal strengths and weaknesses. So understanding what those are and knowing that it's okay to not know, to not be the smartest person in the room, to not be the best at something because your buddy to the left, to your left and right may have the answers that you're looking for. So definitely, if you ever find yourself being trapped in this imposter syndrome, to actually seek out help 
uh, whether it's from a mentor or like I said, from your peers uh, or subordinates, then go do that. I think the other thing that's important about imposter syndrome is <clears throat> just how common it is. You know, like it, it's easy to feel these feelings and feel like you're the only one that feels it, but it's, there are very few people who step into a situation and are like, I have every answer. And if they do, <laughs> they probably are wrong. Yeah. You know, and, and so having those feelings is very, very normal. And then, you know, I think understanding that allows you to do exactly what, what, uh, what all I said is just then rely on, you know, on your body, especially in the military. You know? Special thanks to Jim Martin, our recording studio and audio programming guru. Also thanks to our guests, Natalia, Ala, Tim, and Becca. 